0: And I'd invite you at this time to turn to Galatians 6. We're on the home stretch, and I'm going to read uh, Galatians 6, verses 14 through 18, to get us started this morning. Listen as I read. Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, That is the Word of God, and we're coming to the end of a great letter, a great New Testament epistle from the Apostle Paul. A lot has been packed in, and through the wrap-up, Paul will, in essence, recount and cover again his main points that he's been laying out for these six chapters. We've taken a pretty slow pace through this book of the Bible, but The tone of this book is intense because Paul is concerned not to evangelize the churches in Galatia because there were many. He had done that already. He and Barnabas had, on the first missionary journey, swept through there and won many of these people to Christ. Gentiles predominantly, but Jews and Gentiles coming into the church together as one. He'd won them to Christ But there was a false teaching movement that was saying, you got to keep a portion of the law. You got to do something to really, really be sure that you are a Christian at all. And all of that was on full display through the first Jerusalem council in Acts 15, where these same false teachers were contesting the conversion of Titus, who was from that Galatian region. And they're saying, look, he's a Greek, and he's not been circumcised, so he's not really one of us. Well, that false teaching was pervasive through these churches. And Paul was concerned for the persevering of the saints there. He was concerned that these Christians would be in it, for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake, for the long haul. And that some wouldn't be led astray in the sense that they were duped about the gospel altogether and they weren't trusting the saving gospel at all and they would find themselves not as believers altogether. And that is found in the mystery of God who knows who are really His or who are not. But from our perspective, we are called to embrace the gospel We are saved by grace in the gospel. Nothing that we do, nothing saves us. Nothing keeps us. However, we are called to persevere. We are called to picture in our eyes Jesus Christ at the finish line, the author and finisher of our faith, and to keep going like a train. We keep on the tracks and we chug all the way to the end into glory. And that is a doctrine of perseverance. He who continues to the end, what shall be saved. We're saved at a point in time, but there is a sense of final salvation where we cross a finish line and go to glory, and we didn't forsake the gospel. We didn't go into unrepentant immorality or some kind of sin or some kind of false teaching, and we didn't go there and stay there. We stuck to the tracks of the gospel, and that's Paul's concern. Paul is confronting this church, these Christians, and saying, Believe in the gospel by grace alone. That's where he began in Galatians one four. Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Salvation is by grace through the cross. And that's what he's highlighting. Not just their acceptance of that, but he's doggedly passionate that they would remain loyal to the gospel of grace. And then at the end of... Galatians, in verse 14, there can be no better wrap-up verse that I could see from the pen of Paul than verse 14, because this is applying the gospel of grace. Look at this. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul puts himself out there He's being an example to the church. He's saying, this is what's going on on the inside of me. This is what I'm thinking. He's being vulnerably open to say, I am different than I used to be. I used to be all a part of the world in the name of religious Phariseeism. It was all about that. Galatians 3, I mean, Philippians 3 talks all about that. Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the understudy of the famed, renowned teacher of Israel, Gamaliel. He was big stuff in his mind, and all of that in his mind was dung. It was all loss. It was all refuse in his mind, and instead he's saying, I can only boast in one thing, and that's the cross of Christ. There's one thing that sets me free, period. End of discussion. One thing It's the cross. I can't set myself free. The cross has set me free. I boast, I glory in that alone. And in that, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. In essence, and verse 15 speaks to this, he's become a new creation. Something died in him. And that was his trust in the world and himself. And something has come to life in him. Something has been born anew or afresh in him. This is the testimony of all Christians, right? Something died and something lives. That's Paul's testimony. It's what he is saying. As one person put it, the world's problem is sin, and there's really only one thing that stops sin. Sin was born into the world in Genesis 3, and only one thing stops sin, and that is in a word, death. Death stops sin. The effects of this fallen world stop when you die and leave it. Otherwise, you're affected by your own sin inside of you, and all of the sin in the sin-cursed world that's outside of you, hitting you, provoking what's on inside to come out. And so this sin cycle only dies through death. Some of you have watched helplessly, sadly, at bedside over loved ones who struggle between life and death, or breathing their last in the throes of dying, perhaps, and the effects of sin's Choices are on display sometimes with people who are dying, maybe a premature death or the disease that comes from this fallen world, from this cursed world, as loved ones are trying to figure out whether they should muster the willpower to stay or let go. And then your loved one dies. And when that loved one dies, there is a sense of relief and release because you say, My loved one now is no longer suffering anymore. And for the unbeliever, there's a sadness because you think in terms of the incomprehensibly worse circumstance that someone could be entering into in eternal death. But from our perspective here on earth, even with unbelievers who are suffering before us, there is a rest that we come to. We come to a resting relief that they aren't suffering physically in front of us anymore. Death is a resolution for sin that people are experiencing, but for believers, ironically, the answer is the same. Death is the single word answer for our sin, but guess what? It's not your death that saves you and gives you release and relief from your sin. It's the death of Christ on the cross that gives you resolution, reconciliation, and All is made right in his death, not our own. The death is what brings this. And the death of Christ on the cross, though horrific historically, it has become something profoundly sweet to us. It's a sacrifice for us. It's a gift to us to remove our pain. The gift of the cross is the gift that covers the guilt of our sins. It's a death that leads to life, right? It's a death that leads to heaven. So when you die in the Lord, you go to heaven. So the sting of death is gone forever. It's the death of our Lord on the cross. And this is what Paul's amazing wrap-up is about. He's talking about crucifixion. He's talking about how the death of Christ affects us in two ways. It helps us in our present circumstance... And it ultimately delivers us in our future circumstance. It's Paul's language of the already and not yet. Christ's death means something to you now in relation to your sin. The will of being under sin, the empowerment of sin dies. Something dies in you in Christ now. But ultimate deliverance is in the future. That's what he's talking about here. Something has died and something has come to life. So what is it? What is it exactly? What should your Christian life look like and feel like? What should your experience be? How do we bring gospel close to home? That's what Paul wants to do here. That's why he's opening up with his own testimony. How do we bring the warmth of the gospel near to our own hearts? Well... What dies and what lives? That's what I'm going to try to answer in these next few verses. First of all, love for self and love for Christ. Love for self dies and love for Christ lives. That's verse 14. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the preceding context, what we covered last week was how to avoid persecution basically by being proud and arrogant and compromising on the gospel, being a coward, being a hypocrite. Those attributes of your life, if that's what characterizes you, you will not undergo any persecution. And instead, you actually will be someone, as verse 12 puts it, who makes a good showing in your flesh and who boasts in self. Verse 13. That's what these false teachers were doing. They were boasting in their own religion. They're boasting in their own self-worth. They're boasting in their own accomplishments. You can do that even if you're not a success story yet. You can boast in what you wish you would be. But this kind of arrogance leads nowhere. And it's not the life of Christ. By contrast, Paul is saying, I boast in something. I do boast in something. I boast in the cross. I've got a singular focus of boasting in the one and only object that I can boast in. Some people put it this way. It's called glorying. Glorying. This is not sinful boasting in self. This is not self-absorption. This is being solely focused on Christ and saying, I'm going to throw self off and I'm going to focus on the cross of Christ. You want to be free in this world. You want to be able to engage the world, engage your enemies, engage your community, engage your life. Walk around in a sin-temptation-laden world. Focus on Christ and the gospel. Deliberately focus that way and then enter in. And that's what Paul is saying to do. Now, Paul was rebuking these false teachers. He, He was rebuking all of those who had followed the false teachers as well. And so, as he upbraids them and dismantles them, he was also prepared to clear himself of any like offenses. Paul was clear in his own conscience. He was clear in his doctrine, and he was clear in his life. And so, he, didn't, he wasn't concerned that he was going to be flanked or charged of anything from some sort of side attack that would stick. He was just sticking to plain facts, simple arguments about glorying in Christ And his life and his teaching was evidence that he was the real thing. So look at what he says. He says, far be it from me. That's the Greek word, magineto. That's the strongest negative in the Greek New Testament. May it never be. I will not boast in anything. Paul is making a clean sweep of any kind of temptation to boast in anything else. Magineto. I will not boast in anything. By the way, if you want to be free, if you want to be Released, unshackled from self, from the world, from your flesh, you've got to be this deliberate. You've got to say, I'm crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You've got to be able to say, I have denied myself, I'm taking up my cross, and I'm following Christ. If your right hand causes you to stumble, what do you do? Well, you kind of leave it, you know, half attacked. No, you cut it off. You gouge out your eye. You do what it takes, radical amputation. You go into the soul and say, only Christ. That's what he's saying. Far be it from me to do anything but this. Romans 6 uses the same language when people were tampering with the gospel. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to sin more? Um, so that there can be more grace poured in. I'm going to pour in some more grace to test the gospel so that God will have to pour in um, more gospel covering. No, that's ludicrous. That's making, making an excuse for your sin. How can we who died to sin still live it? Live in it? He says, may it never be, by no means, may genito. So in essence, Paul is saying, it's inconceivable for me to boast in anything else but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard uh, an interview one time where someone was interviewing John Piper, who was retiring from 30-some years of pulpit ministry and writing. And I guess he still writes and speaks, but it was just the ongoing week-in, week-out pastorate. And he had become nationally known and and drawn so so much of a following that especially in the millennial crowd, that they were asking him, what do you think is going to happen when you retire? Is this going to make a dent in evangelicalism? Is this going to make things digress? And Piper immediately said, that's insane. That's insane. Don't think that way about me. He knew he was just a man. That's how we all have to think. We're just people. We're just sin-sick, shriveled-up souls walking around, right? We have grace, but god 's grace is all we can point to in this life for joy so he 's making a clean sweep here he 's not sinfully boasting first Corinthians chapter five six says uh, "Your boasting is not good." He was rebuking the Corinthians for their boasting because he preached grace in the gospel of christ first corinthians nine sixteen he says, "I preach the gospel, so it gives me no grounds for boasting he 's saying. There's no room for self-boasting, only boasting in Christ. Philippians 3.3. 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and may place no confidence in our flesh. Listen, I know, like me, many of you walk around and feel the bondage of your flesh and you're looking for an answer. You're looking for the solution. How is it that you can have freedom from your sin? It's making, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this kind of daily, deliberate decision to say, I'm only going to boast in Christ. Wake up tomorrow morning with that first thought on your mind. Load it before you go to bed. I want to wake up and say, I want to boast in Christ. Wake up and say, I am going to give you glory Lord Jesus, today, because of your cross and your cross alone. Don't wake up and have some self-help thing going in your mind. Don't do that. Don't, you know, say, you know, I am special, I am great, I am wonderful, I am good. You know, watch out, world, hear me roar, here I come, you know. Those kinds of things will defeat you because your flesh is still there. You still have sin in your life. But if you boast in Christ... Then you'll multiply the power of God in your life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he preached all the time. I don't have the stats on how many sermons he preached. He's preaching all the time. He's running an orphanage, running a massive church in England. And people said, well, how do you do all the work that you do? And he said, well, there's two of us. And he meant Christ in him. But that's only accessed when there's no focus on you. Christians need to come to know they are saved only because of the work of Christ alone, wholly by grace, not their own work. As soon as you begin to think that you did anything to make you a Christian or keep you a Christian or sustain you as a Christian, as soon as those kinds of thoughts come in, you are on the proverbial hamster wheel, and you got to spin it faster and faster to try to feel like you are okay with God. Instead, you have to be... Like the woman who entered into Simon the Pharisee's house, seeing Jesus there, broke open an alabaster of, of ointment, which was obviously a massive amount of money's worth of ointment because Judas Iscariot was condemning her immediately as she anointed the Lord Jesus's head and feet and, and wiped his feet with her tears and her hair. And Judas is saying, why did you waste all that money? And Jesus immediately goes to the gospel in Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, when you're forgiven by Christ, there's no such thing as really being forgiven a little. He doesn't forgive just a little bit. He washes all of you when you were forgiven. Jesus' point here is that if in your mindset you believe, you know, like a Pharisee said, I've been forgiven a little bit. I'm glad for grace and all the good stuff I do also with grace. And I put that together and I'm good. And I'm propping myself up and I'm going to hold it together because I'm going to keep this good column up enough with the God column and the grace column and I'm good. And this is my life and this is how I feel. Isn't this just a happy, joyful experience all the time? Well, the woman who could have been Mary Magdalene, a harlot, comes in and says, you know what? It was all by grace. It's nothing I could do. I didn't save me. Nothing could have pulled me out of that. There is no explanation but grace. It had to have been a supernatural intervention that got me from there to here, to this moment. And so I, I give this offering, everything, everything in this moment to the Lord Jesus because he's here, right here in front of me. And I will do that by grace. People who have later conversions often know their sin because it was more on display before they were saved. Childhood salvation is much better um, because you don't have to see and sin in the way that that plays out in unbridled passions as you get older and older and your sin matures and, and your sin opportunities multiply. But when you are radically converted out of a unbridled sin pattern and you see what you were saved from oftentimes like the apostle Paul who said I am the chief of sinners comes a great passion to serve and a great awareness that they were saved by grace alone believing you're saving yourself is a form of idolatry and that word let's just concretize it right now it's being a controller People who worship idols are control freaks. They create a godlet to control God in their life. That's what it is. So when you are saving yourself, you are bowing and worshiping the sin temptation to be in control. And by trying to grab control of your life by your flesh, you're actually enslaving yourself like you're reaching out to control your life your circumstance your situation your outcomes and by you doing that handcuffs come on and you're being controlled by your own flesh ironically it's a trap so this is why the cross of christ is the supreme symbol of the christian life The cross is the key that unlocks the handcuffs to free us from self-control or the control of self sinfully. The cross was always meant for shame. It was always criminal shame. It was always the end of a misdirected life. The death of the cross was always offensive to the Jews. It was always offensive and foolishness to the Gentiles. And for obvious reasons. It's a criminal's death. It was the gas chamber. It was the hangman's noose. It was death by lethal injection. That's what the cross was. It was people being pinned up in front of a town or a city to warn the enemies that this could happen to you. The cross was horrible and is horrible, but for Christians, it's viewed dramatically In a different light, it's the power of God. It's the mechanism that frees. Listen to 1 Corinthians 18 in light of what I've said so far. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That language there is interesting. Being saved, you are saved when you are converted. Signed, sealed, and delivered. And then God keeps you saved. That's what it means to be being saved. Grammar lesson moment be being, right? Be being saved. You're you're kept. Nothing can snatch you from the Father's hands. You're sealed in the Holy Spirit. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29, you were justified, then you're sanctified, and then ultimately you're glorified. You were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. It's being kept. And how are you kept powerful through this process? How are you kept unshackled from your guilt? How are you kept to live in this world? Because we're not supposed to leave the world yet, so how do we live in it? We live in it with a cross-centered mindset where you say, I am crucified of the world and the world to me. And it was by grace alone that I was saved. And so it's by grace alone that I will live. Romans 1.16, same thing. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. Again, it's the power of God to save you, but it's the power of God in your life. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Believers know Christ being crucified was necessary. There's no other way to save yourself. And you come back to that groundwork again and again. That's where the power of the cross becomes a purifying mechanism in your life. Because the power of the cross is what made you presentable to God. It's your boast. It's your boast. Not boast in self. It's boast in what Christ did to give you your standing. And something happened in you. Remember where I began in my outline. When you were saved, something died and something has come to life. An old era in your life has died and something new has come. The old creation has died and the new creation is born. That's what it means to be born again. I have been crucified with Christ. This is Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now look at Galatians 2.21, the next verse. I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't make the grace of God not count anymore. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, that's Paul going, I am crucified with Christ... It happened, and now I'm tempted to become a legalist. I really want to be performance-oriented. I really want to go into a self-saving mindset. I really want to feel worse about my life when my bad is outweighing my good. I really want to go there. And Paul's saying, don't do that, because if I nullify the grace of God, if I make grace not count in my life as I try to live for Christ... I'm just basically trying to be righteous through the law. And Christ died for no purpose. Did he die for no purpose? No. Have you begun in the spirit? Now you're being perfected by the flesh. That was an earlier theme. You see how all these things are, again, being recaptured with these final statements of Paul. Boasting is the opposite of being engaged in outward religion, a devotion to self, self self-absorption, trying to win the praise of others, trying to boast ...in self rather than only in the cross of Christ. Let me say it this way too. Some people will twist this application up and say, okay, I'm going to boast in the cross... ...and I'm going to forget about the world. I'm going to make my Christocentric, cross-centered, Christ-only focus... ...an escape mechanism where I don't have to talk to anybody in the world anymore. It's just Jesus and I'm going to be like this and it's just Jesus and I'm not going to talk to anybody... And that'll be what God wants. No. No. Christianity is not a call to separatism. It's not an excuse to not face your life. You boast in the cross and then you engage the world and you face the world. As John Stott put it, and I love this. This is probably my favorite application of anything I'm going to say this morning. I'll just skip it. No, just kidding. All right, here we go. It's impossible to boast in yourself and in the cross simultaneously. So it's living selflessly, engaging the world, engaging your neighbors, engaging your friends, engaging your enemies, engaging your issues, engaging your, you know, your your goals, your obligations, your deliverables, your life, your worry, your pressures. You're engaging it with a cross centered focus, all for Christ. I'm going to go, but all for Christ. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm not going to fall back into cowardice, um, passivity. I'm going to go forward, but forward for Christ. Every living person has to face this choice. Will I boast in myself and believe I can save myself? Or will I humble myself as a hell-deserving sinner? Either bondage to the world or freedom from the world That's what we're talking about. And when you are in this mindset, it's a massive turnaround for your life because the world is dead to you. The Christian is free because you don't care what people think. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit, by the way. You, You are not careless, but you're carefree. See the difference? The world ceases to lay claim on your life. The world has no power over your life. Paul is saying the world is dead to me. But catch what I'm saying here. Paul is not saying that the world's temptations and the wiles of Satan and your flesh is dead. It's just when you are crucified with Christ in your mindset. When you're going, I am crucified to the world and the world to me. I am submitting myself to the power of the Holy Spirit and I am walking in step with the Holy Spirit. When that is your mindset, then the strength of the world's attraction is limited and is dying in your life at that moment. It's the mortification of sin. The desperation to be in favor with the world is dead. The world's affections And attractions no longer consume. The world's power no longer has control. You're crucified to the world and the world to you. You've parted company. You've parted company. It's a freeing gospel. I don't care what the world says or does to me. What does the world mean? The word world means um, the world order. It's the Greek word kosmion. If you see it there, the world, verse 14 has been crucified to me. The Cosmion has been crucified to me. It's where we get the word cosmetic. As uh, my old college professor put it, who first explained this word, it's bringing um, order to chaos, and that's why we get the whole cosmetic industry. Ha ha. But, But in this sense... The world is something negative so the cosmion or the order like the order of the planets in the cosmos or the cosmetic of the world is a false beauty it's a evil ordering it's an evil order that's been brought together against you it's an evil world system that's ruled by the devil John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you. This is Christ speaking of going to the cross. It says, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, yet among the mature we do not. We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of the age of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So we're talking about Satan. We're talking about demons, rulers, authorities, powers of this present darkness that send flaming darts of temptation to our thinking to mess up our lives. That's this world that we're in, the ideological systems. The governing authorities over us that are not Christianized, even though ordained by God, you have to discern the value systems, even conservative ones, but also liberal ones. Because you have to realize God has given some leash to Satan to be the God of this world, lowercase g. Martin Luther said, you know, the devil prowls around like a roaring roaring lion, but it's on a leash. And God's holding the leash, and that's true, but Satan is alive and well. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Listen to this verse, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When people are in rebellion, anarchy, and are in a spirit of disobedience, that is satanic. That's satanic. That is the devil's realm. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from him and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does this look like typically in the life of someone who's being seduced by Satan, which is most people? Most people are giving their life to a life of meaninglessness where they are ruled by the flesh. It's the Greek culture of nihilism or nihilism. 1 Corinthians 15.32. Paul was saying, what do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised. What he was saying is is that if Christians are dying in the Colosseum and being eaten by animals for the faith, and they just die and they're not resurrected, if there's no afterlife, if they're not going to get their body again, if they're really not going into a real heaven, then what does it all matter anyway? And he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Most people that you'll interact with, even though they believe in a heaven and they believe maybe in some sort of hell, and they believe that the way to heaven is your good outweighs the bad, most people think that way. Most people will say, look, I'm not as bad as This person. I haven't done what that person did. So God, if he's really love, will let me into heaven. And hell probably doesn't exist. Most people will give you that line. But really, the mindset that they're living in is not in light of an afterlife at all. It's get all you can out of this life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because we're going to die. Because it's all going to end. So live it up. Live it up. Put it all on credit card. You know? That's what... The world is saying. The world being crucified means that the world and the believer are dead to each other. It's an influence is gone. There's been a death blow dealt in your life. And Philippians 3.20 is where Paul said our citizenship is in where? Heaven. Our mindset is up there where we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Our spiritual position before God is set. And our sin has become a dead issue. The law has become a dead issue in your life. And the world becomes a dead issue. And even though we may fall prey to lust, it's a dead issue. It's like going back to the world as a Christian. When you are in a crucified mindset, I am crucified with Christ mindset. It's like going and playing with a dead body. It's dead. The old man is dead. It makes no sense to associate with a corpse. Colossians two twenty. If you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, which are the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, temptations, then why are you still alive? Why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? Why are you still going into the world system if you're dead? That's what Paul is saying. I like what Spurgeon said about all of this. I always bring up a Spurgeon quote typically. He said, he regarded the world, Paul regarded the world as nailed up like a felon that hanged on the cross, was hanged upon the cross to die. Its character was condemned. He says, I don't think much of you, poor world, you're like a doomed malefactor. So if you keep the cross of Christ, you must expect the world will be crucified to you and you will be crucified to the world You will get by the world a cold shoulder. Listen to this. Old friends will become open enemies. They will begin to hate you more than they loved you before. At home, your foes will be the men of your own household. You will hardly be able to do anything right. They scout you out as a hypocrite and slanderously blacken your character. Let their dislike be a badge of your discipleship. Whatever the world says against me for Christ's sake is a grumbling of a doomed evildoer. And what do I care for that? That's kind of a hard line to say, but listen, that's how strong you have to be in the Christian life. You have to do battle with your own flesh, with your own mindset, and with your own path of discipleship where you're crucified with Christ. But you live. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new Creation. First of all, something is alive in you and something is dead. Love for Christ is alive, love for self is dead, and then, secondly, trusting in your power is dead, trusting in the Holy Spirit's power is brought to life. When you become a Christian, Whether you are religious or non-religious, whether you have achievements or moral failures, all of those really are washed away in an ocean of irrelevance when it comes to salvation. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Christ has done. It's understanding the gospel in this way. It really makes you feel less inferior. It, It makes you less intimidated by people. It should be that way. It's where you're willing to say, listen... What I've done or not done in the past doesn't have relevance on how I'm interacting with you or how I feel about you or how I think you feel about me. How freeing is that? That's where everybody wants to be. That's how the world makes up superheroes on in the media where you're dressed up. And you look better than people or you think you look better than people, you're more athletic, you're stronger, you're quicker with a joke, you're liked, you're well-respected, you're smarter than people. All of those externals and props are what the world puts on stage to say, if you create this for yourself, cosmetically, then you're free. Right? Isn't that, I mean, just, I mean... You know, the pastor said, go watch TV commercials. But no, but when you watch TV or you see something out there, just evaluate it along those lines. Typically, there is this false statue, an idol that's put out in front of you that says, if you're like that, or if you strive to be like that, or you achieve one tenth of that by giving that company all your money to try to make you like that, then you're free. And that's not freedom. Paul in prison is saying, no, freedom is being crucified with Christ and I'm crucified with Christ and the world is crucified to me. That's it. You are free from religion. You're free from the haves and the have not. You're free from the need to try to feel superior or to scorn anyone. Verse 15, look at the end. But I am a new creation. It's being crucified to all those who have an opinion, whether one is circumcised or not, is utter, utterly irrelevant in the centrality of the cross because the new creation era has dawned in your life. And you know, I just want to say a word about this, um, this issue on circumcision. It really didn't matter one way or the other to Paul whether someone was circumcised or not. Do you realize that Timothy needed to be circumcised? Titus needed to not be circumcised. The issue with this action was all boiled down to its meaning, its significance, and the motivation behind it. So some people, you know, will do certain things and won't do certain things in the church. But for all of us, we have to evaluate our motive and the meaning of what we're doing or not doing. In that way, we are set up to lay down our rights to any, anyone, whether you're a stronger brother or a weaker brother, whether you can participate in certain things that are gray areas or you can't participate in certain things. All of those things at, at a certain level are meaningless. And we should be willing to lay certain things down, anything down for the sake of our brother or sister in Christ being a new crea- creation, it, it basically means this. The power of the gospel saved you and you did not save yourself. And the power, that same power of the gospel, that same Holy Spirit that regenerated you is the same Holy Spirit that is empowering you, not yourself. Not yourself. Paul gloried in the cross so that he would tap into what his flesh was too weakened And corrupted to do for himself. Paul had a testimony, and we already talked about this, where he really was all about himself before he was saved. He was a Christian killer, and he was the best at it. I think that's what the book of Acts is saying. He was dragging people out of their homes, he was getting it done, and he was getting it done from his perspective in the name of God. He had notches on his belt. Because he was promoting himself, but he was promoting himself in the name of God. Think about that. The arrogance. But, but it was a, a weirdly idolatrous, egotistical, religious, egomaniac mindset where he was believing that what he was doing was glory to God and it was the ultimate example of glory to himself. Acts 9, five. the Lord Jesus himself confronted Paul for this and said, and, and Paul or Saul, who became Paul, said to the Lord, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's the same story with Nicodemus and Jesus confronting Nicodemus by night. Remember that in John chapter 3? Nicodemus went to Jesus. Nicodemus had seen the powers of God through Christ. And it was so irrefutable that Nicodemus had to talk to him. People say, well, it says he met him by night. What relevance does that have? I think it has a lot of relevance. A lot of people say, oh, it doesn't. It just meant he met him at night. No, no. he met him at night because he wanted to do it in hiding. Nicodemus was, as Jesus put it in John three one, the ruler of the Jews. In John 3.10, he was the teacher of Israel, would basically be you know, revered like the pope or someone in the Roman Catholic Church. The ultimate religious man on earth, that's Nicodemus. And Jesus said to him, how are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. You don't understand what I'm talking about. And ultimately, the reason he didn't understand what he was talking about is because he was not yet, what? Born again. You must be born again. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. The natural person will not look at these two verses and say, this has bearing on my life. A spiritually minded person will say, aha, that's right. It's all about the cross. It really is all about the cross. I've been crucified with Christ. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Man needs an entirely new life from an entirely new new birth.